Before we begin, a disclaimer. This podcast is for information only. I am not a mental health or medical professional, nor are my guests unless otherwise stated. My guests and I do not speak for or represent any recovery programs or workshops. I do not sell ads on this podcast, and I do not make any money from it. And finally, I want to warn you that some episodes may contain content about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, which some listeners may find triggering or dysregulating. Hello, and welcome to the Loving Parent Podcast. If you're new here, this is where we explore the ideas of becoming our own loving parents and reparenting our trauma to build resilience. If you've been here before, welcome back. My name is Brita, and I'm your host. On this episode of our podcast, I'll be talking with my friend Christy. Christy is a person that I've known for the last couple of years since she began her recovery as an adult child. She also has 27 years of addiction recovery under her belt. So she's a little unusual in that respect in that she came to her adult children recovery after many years of addiction recovery. And I think she has a unique perspective to share. So Christy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brita. Happy to be here. All right. I'm so glad to have you. Um, Let's just start right off with the question of what got you to start adult children recovery after all those years in addiction recovery? Well, I had been in another program for the families of alcoholics and addicts. And a gal that I was friends with had brought me to a different meeting because I was in so much grief over my aunt passing away so unexpectedly. And she passed away from a rare liver cancer, but it was very clear to me that she had been living this very unhappy, lonely life, but would always show up with a smile and say everything was fine. And I just didn't know what else to do. And so this friend of mine brought me to a adult child meeting and it was exactly where I needed to be. <laughs> I felt like I could just sit there and be myself. I had so much grief. I didn't know what to do with. I remember, as, as I recall, you pretty much cried through your first several months of meetings. Yeah. 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 It was hard. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's definitely not for the weak of heart. No, I always feel like I've been led in my recovery to the next phase. And I did feel like I was being kind of as as somewhat in a spiritual way being pushed in that direction as I would, you know, in grief, I think we pray a lot in grief. I do at least. Yeah. What, how do I, how do I help myself in this? How do I get through this? And that was the next step. And so I'm, I'm pretty good. I've learned in my long time recovery to, to say yes, when the answer, someone shows up and gives you a solution or or an answer, you know, to your prayer. And that was it. That was one of them, you know, come to this meeting. Right. I know at least try it. There's Mm -hmm. nothing to be lost by trying something. Right. I agree. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your childhood. Um, Mm -hmm. Were your parents married when you were born and were they happily married? 
So they were married when I was born. Um, I did, they were not happily married. It was 1970 and my mom got pregnant with me at first year in college. So they got married because, well, she told me later abortion wasn't legal in Arizona. And that at that time, a lot of unwed young women were being sent away still to have their babies in secret because it was a shame. Right. Um, so they just got married. Yeah. So they were still trying to get used to being married and, and probably felt forced into it. Yeah, she did for sure. I think my dad was running from a very abusive family and looking for a family. And he was happy to marry into my mom's family. My grandmother loved him. And so I think they both had different expect, you know, they were, they were on different pages for sure. Right. And were either of them addicted or had a mental illness at the time when you were born? Um, I would say my dad was at the time addicted definitely to smoking pot. I can look back and remember that even as a really young kid. And alcohol was always a big part of his life. So I would say, yeah, he was probably by that time already addicted to alcohol and drugs. And then as far as with my mom, you know, she has mental illness. She has more of a personality disorder, but that was not necessarily understood at the time. After many conversations with family and even friends, you know, that people that, you know, were around, they can see patterns then. Okay. Did you have any siblings? I guess you didn't when you were born. So you're the first in the birth order, but um, yeah. other siblings? Not for 10 years. So oh, wow. I had a brother that's 10 years younger than me. Being an only child for as long as you were, when you think about the family roles of hero and scapegoat, lost child mm -hmm. and clown, mm -hmm. do you feel that any of those were particularly you in your early years? Yeah, you know, I think this is an interesting part of being in this recovery to be able to look at the roles. I've I've come to understand I kind of was handed the hero role or a, a, a role that wasn't me <laughs> from right. the very beginning. And there were two kind of separate roles from each parent. So like my mom, saw, my mom really had an image of me being her daughter. She used to sew for her, you know, Barbie dolls. And, you know, she had uh -huh. this like very specific image of me that was not me. And then my dad kind of had this idea that I was there to entertain him, oh. um, be there for him. So early, early on, I think I had kind of this, I don't know if it would be the clown, but entertainer role where mm -hmm. I would get attention if I would sing in front of them or do funny stuff. But only when the, my dad permitted it, you know, it was like on his demand kind of. Um, oh, and otherwise you're supposed to be seen and not heard. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That was definitely right. his, his route. And then for on my mom's side, I really kind of... I really like flip-flopped between actually the hero and scapegoat. So I was like, she was always training me into this role. And, and it, a lot of it was just for both of them, just to like be somebody I'm not. And so I would go along with it to get attention and I'd get praise. But as soon as I got tired of that and wanted to just be myself, like my grandmother said, I had a mind of my own. Um, you know. that I would get punished. And so I would then be the scapegoat. Like you're, you know, right. that, that, I don't know if you remember that stupid nursery rhyme, the little girl with the curl in the middle of her oh, head. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so my yes. mom used when to say that good, to me. She was very, very good. Uh -huh. When she was bad, she was horrid. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think that nursery rhyme is a perfect example of scapegoating and, and scapegoating or heroing a child, like a girl. Right. 
Um, right. So that, yeah. So those were, I think scapegoat and hero are the two I've, I've flip flopped through. Right. Well, from the experts that I've read on the topic, those two roles have to be filled in a family. Mm, okay. So if there's only one child, they have to flip back and forth between those two. And they sometimes slip into the others as well. Mm-hmm. So once your brother was born, do you <laughs> think you solidified one role or another, or did you continue to flip back and forth? Oh, no, I think it I, I slipped right into the scapegoat role. <laughs> like that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, he was my brother was wanted. He was a boy. There were all of these things. He was way easier. His personality is very different than mine. He he was very easygoing. You know, by the time he was two and I was 12, they were taking me to therapy because I was so out of control. So, yeah, I I definitely stepped right into the scapegoat, scapegoat role when he was, you know, at least a couple years old. Yeah. Where was your safe place when you were little? Definitely at my grandmother's house. Okay. Uh, and she lived near you, right? Yeah. She lived um, when, from the time I was about one until I was five and a half. We only lived a few doors away from her. When it got too much, when I was having a mind of my own at my house and yes. being punished for that, because that's kind right. of what happened, I would run to her crying and tell her everything. And she would just say, oh, this child's got a mind of her own. Like, just that's the way it is. And so I was just allowed to be myself with her. Right. right. So that was validating. Yeah. 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 She didn't try to talk you out of it or anything. No, she gave up. Like, I think she, had, when I was really little, had an attempt. I rem- just remember this one memory with her. She was really good at, well, she grew up with like, you know, you switch in your kids, you know, if they weren't, yeah. you know, swat them. Right. And so right. she had taken a leaf or a, a branch off the olive tree. I don't know what I was doing, but she was going to come out and I outran her. Yeah. Little, I was pretty little, like two and a half, maybe three. Yeah. And she just sat down laughing on the grass Yeah, and was just like, ah, this is over. Like, I ain't doing okay. this. Yeah. yeah, this this child is beyond that. Yeah. <laughs> and but but her and I had a very close relationship. She has she never shamed me for that. I always felt like she accepted that in me. Right. I know there's one writer in early adult children literature who talked about cookie people. Mm. And she said those are the people who give us validation and help us have a little bit of self-esteem. And Mm -hmm. her theory was that most of us would not have survived without these cookie people in our lives. Oh, yeah. Um, And can you think of other cookie people that you had when you were little? Well, my aunt who passed oh, away, yeah. she was at a, at a very young age. So she was only 13 years older than me when I was born. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of got embraced into my mom's family because my mom was so young and my dad was so young. And we lived there. It was kind of like I, I was a little sister. You know, my dad went to Vietnam when I was eight months old. So we moved in with my grandparents and I actually was put in my aunt's room. Um, in my crib. So I got really attached to her and her to me. And she would take me to, you know, once she could drive, she was taking me to preschool and um, she lived with us a lot. She slept in my bed a lot when I was a kid. She was definitely my nurturer. Um, She would like, you know, put me to bed and stuff like, so her and my grandmother, when I was really young, oh yeah. If I didn't have those two, it would have been tough. Oh my gosh. You were so lucky to have them. Yeah. It's just hard to even imagine what your life would have been like without them. Oh yeah. No, I don't. (laughs) I can certainly. I'm really grateful. Yeah. Yeah. I can certainly understand why the grief over your aunt's death would have tripped you into adult child recovery. Yeah. That was tough. I still miss her daily. 
and when I was 15, my dad married a really wonderful lady. I mean, I was just, mm-hmm. she's a big blessing and she had three kids and she was just, she just loved me. I could go over there at 15, 16. Oh, she helped me through college. She was definitely like an angel in our yeah. life at the time. Yeah. So um, I, I was blessed with her and her name was Faye. And um, I don't think I would have really done nearly as well as I did as a young adult without her. Right. Thinking about when your little brother was born, do you remember feeling parentified? I love that word. You know, mm-hmm. I think it it says so much about what we were asked to do as children that our parents should have done as far as taking care of them and other people in our families. So yeah. is there a time that you can remember that you started to feel parentified? Not right when he was born, although I did feel like he was mine, you know, like Uh, I wished for him for so long. I really wanted a brother or sister for so long. So I was so happy when he came. But when I was 13 is when it really happened. My mom, you know, had a big episode with my dad and took us away unexpectedly and no plan, no money. And her parents were not happy about that. So she cut contact with them, you know, up until he was three and I was 13. My grandmother was like a huge part of our life. She watched my brother too. So, you know, I didn't, they didn't need me to do that. They had my grandmother there, but once that got cut, um, I was expected at that point by my mom and actually my dad, but my dad just didn't say it out loud. I just did it because my dad was, you know, my dad started drinking really heavily. So it was like me and my brother and then my, you know, but we spent most time with my mom and she really expected me to step into the shoes of my dad in a sense, like the expectation of watching my brother um, doing chores around the house. And I didn't really fight with her about the, my brother thing, because I really loved him and loved him and wanted to take care of him. But, um, the chores, I didn't, I fought on that. Right. Um, you know, it was definitely parentified then. And I, she gave me a car. Remember I got a car right away at 16 because I could drive my brother to my dad's and I could pick him up from school after school. Like I did a lot of that. And, that's exactly what my aunt did for me. So it wasn't, mm-hmm. it didn't seem at the time, it felt like that's what I should be doing because <laughs> that's what right. was done for me. My parents didn't do that kind of stuff very much. So other right. people did. Yeah. Well, that's definitely what hero children do. And mm-hmm. that for the first time, I've just thought of your aunt as a hero child as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. During her teenage years. Yeah. She was really like, I, it's funny when I think about that she was 13 when I was born because she was so grown up even by the time I was like three, she graduated, I think high school at like 16 or something. Oh I mean, my. she was like really young and she got wanted yeah. to get out of the house. Right. You know, she, she wanted to get away from home really young. So yeah, she grew up, she grew up fast. I feel like too. What do you think were some of the first traumas in your childhood? You know, the, the I think that there there's, it, it, I have to just say it was interesting I, in my addiction recovery. It wasn't until like about four years ago, I had um, a lady I was working with um, say, you need to do a, a, a trauma timeline. Mm. And I was like, what? Like that was new. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, uh-huh. and like, you know, the whole addiction world is changing um, by looking yes. at trauma. Right. So here I am like, right. 20, what was I like 22, 23 years sober? And I'm like, I'm going to do a trauma timeline. Oh, what? And I, and <laughs> yeah. I did this timeline and it was 
really difficult. I, by, I, by the time I was 12 years old, there were so many traumas that, that weren't even the big one. The big one really happened when I was 13. But up until 12, there were a lot of small traumas, which I wouldn't say are small, but I considered them small, smaller right. than the 13-year-old one. Right. And so, you know, I think my, my first like experience with real telling, mm-hmm. a lot of my trauma came from people outside the family. It was interesting too, because there was just like no there was no discernment on like this would be an okay person to watch me. And my mom, you know, was in, I think she was teaching kindergarten at the time because she had finished college and went to be a school teacher. And so they were always just trying to find someone to take care of me. And and I think Mm -hmm. my aunt was in college and my grandmother was going to visit her sister. So um, this was my first exposure to not being cared for really by outside people and, or by the family. I had another babysitter who my mom had watched me. She was just too young. She was 14 and she was come, came from a very difficult family and, but she did not like me. And, you know, she came over and started smoking cigarettes at our house. I was like, hold on, I have cigarettes. And I ran in and got my, <laughs> I got my homemade, or my, my uh, Lucky Strike. Um, they used to sell these like candy. They probably still do candy cigarettes. Oh yeah. Everybody smoked in the seventies. And I got my little cigarettes and I sat on the couch and was smoking with her. And she goes, that's not a real cigarette. And she made me smoke a real cigarette. She was just really abusive and mean. And I remember like running to my grandmother's house, like begging my grandmother not to leave me with her. And then, you know, I had, you know, a series of babysitters after that, when we moved away from my grandmother's house, we moved about 15 minutes away. So I couldn't run to her anymore. Mm. I had, I had a neighbor that babysat me and I was best friends with her daughter and she was very religious. And there was a lot of religious abuse that actually caused me to have a lot of night terrors and sleepwalking. And I was like telling my parents, but they wouldn't remove me from her. I would tell them and they wouldn't do anything. At a neighbor. Tell us about the time they took you to church and, and the film that you oh, yeah. <laughs> were made to watch. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah. Like, I mean, I this is towards the end, you know, of the babysitting. Yeah. I, and this is where the scapegoat role, I just want to say like the scapegoat role served me really well. And mm-hmm. I, it served me well with this lady because I just didn't believe everything she was saying that God could just could not be like this. Right. So she, yeah, they took, uh, they took me to church. I wanted to go, you know, I wanted to go with my friend to church. Right. I had no, no idea what I was getting into. And they put all the kids in one room to watch the movie. And it was basically a, a, a movie made by the church on the Armageddon. And it was mm-hmm. about a family, which was like mine, because she would tell me like, oh, you, I can't save your mom and dad from the pit of fire, but I can save you and get mm. on your knees and accept Jesus in your heart. And you won't go to the pit of fire and you won't die at the end of the world. And so when you're five, <laughs> you have yeah. no concept of that oh, yeah. six and seven, right? right? So we go to see this movie and it's like solidifying everything she's been telling me for the last like, you know, three years of babysitting me. And it's basically this little boy has no choice because his, he's under the care of his parents and they don't want to believe in Jesus. And it's the end of the world. And there's this beast that's walking the world that if you don't mm-hmm. accept Jesus, so everyone that can accept Jesus into their heart, they just go to heaven. And then right. this was, I mean, this is my eight-year-old memory, right? So right. then if you don't, you run, the beast will find you and gut you and leave you in the, in the, in the desert for like three days to bleed to death. Cause that's one option. Yeah. Or yeah. you can go to the church and have your head cut off and go to heaven 
Or you can take the number of the beast, which is a tattoo, and then mm. you can just, I mean, this is insanity, right? Yeah. Well, at the end of the, you know, and if you take the number of the beast, you can live like everyone else, but you're living under the reign of the devil. Like, it's just right. like, you know, even saying it now, I'm like, oh my God, I'm holding my breath. You know, it's like, yeah. how can they teach children this? I just kind of remember going away. Like, I just knew this couldn't be true. And at the end of the movie, the little boy, he's carrying a little red balloon. They chop his head off. Yeah. And they cheer oh. that he's gone to heaven. And I remember going home after that. And I ne- told my mom, I need to go to a different church. Like I, I knew at eight. Yeah. I can't, this can't be it. So I started like having her drop me off at this other church that was just like, kind of like a Christian normal church mm-hmm. where people cared for each other. And they like followed what I would believe was Jesus's teachings, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah. and I started fighting with this, her daughter. Cause I, I was always told I was like bringing the devil over. And, um, oh. and so they couldn't, they actually couldn't save me. <laughs> so <laughs> I refused it. And um, they, she said she couldn't watch me anymore. Um, well, but thank like, goodness. thank goodness. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that was trauma. Until right. years in my addiction recovery. Um, yeah. But it, it was a big trauma in my life on trusting people and telling. And you know, it's like kind of this like wall. I remember like I kind of walled myself off from people at that point. You know, like, oh, I don't know if I, I wouldn't talk about religion. Yeah. And it wasn't allowed to be talked about in my house. Um, but, you know, my parents just didn't do anything. And, and a neighbor, very, very scary, big, like fat, like pedophile-ish biker guy tried mm. to kidnap me when I was eight. He oh, tried my. to get me to get in his van. And I was like, you know, here you go. I'm a fighter, man. I'm a scapegoat kid. I'm like, you know, no. And right. I like go and tell and nothing happened. I mean, this guy would drive by my house regularly oh. and yell obscenities at me as a little kid, you know. So my parents just wouldn't respond. I don't, you know, they just those were pretty big traumas. And right. you know, I, had a, I had a cousin that would come and visit and they put, he was five years older. He had an older brother and, you know, they put me in a room with him at eight years old. He tried to, you know, he molested me, tried to get me to have sex with him again. You know, I fought, yeah. you know, I was a fighter. I was like, I'm not doing that. You know, I ran to my parents' right. room, but by that point I didn't tell anymore. Uh, you know, at eight, I stopped telling. Cause it's like, yeah. nothing was going to happen. And I would actually t- sometimes get punished for it. You know, mm-hmm. it'd be wor- it would be worse. It would be very shameful. Right. right. You know, it's, there's a lot of shame in telling and then no one doing anything about it. Right. Well, and did you get blamed for some of it? Like if you hadn't done such and such, this wouldn't have happened? Yeah, probably. There was a lot of blame going around. Um, I know with the thing with my cousin, they would have, I would have been in trouble. I just yeah. had this feeling that this is not something I can tell. Like it's going to come down hard on me if I tell on this one, <laughs> you know, So you've mentioned that you had the major trauma, I put that in quotes, when you were 13. So how did that come about? Well, you know, just to, I always like to talk about the right before that happened, because it's really helpful for me and my recovery to remember that my family actually, you know, took me to the therapist at 12 and said, oh my gosh, this kid's out of control. We don't know what to do. Cause I was refusing the hero role is really what I was doing. And I was finding out that my dad was smoking pot and I was like, not listening. You know, I was seeing stuff as, and it's an age appropriate thing at 12 to start rebelling. And, but I was pretty, I was, you know, pretty loud and pretty wild. And they didn't know really how to handle me. So the therapist said flat out, like, she's just acting normal for a child and an adult child, an adult as a child in an alcoholic family. 
And so that was like life-saving. I think that I am eternally grateful for that person because he identified they were scapegoating me really and that they were the problem. And so my mom heard alcoholics. So then she just like kind of started like focusing on all the drinkers and alcoholics in the family, including my dad who drank. And, but he did tell her to go to the, you know, the program for the family of, right. uh, and, you know, of alcoholics. So she did start going and things got really good. Like I just remember this kind of calm, you know, oh. things were easy with them. They were in therapy. My mom was doing some of that work. I don't know if it was a year or six months, but it was a period of time that my life actually really blossomed. I was doing really yeah. good in school. I was student council president. I was having probably my my reflection probably the best time of my life. Wow. You know, I was, uh, had good friends. I, we lived in a very, very bad neighborhood. And for at mm-hmm. that period of time, I just wasn't really getting effects of it. You know, I was sticking yeah. with the, sticking with the kids that weren't, you know, smoking on the corner, you know, I was right. trying to, you know, and maybe I was playing a bit of a hero role too, just kind of, that was the natural role to fall into, but it was my stuff. It was my, my interest, not theirs that I can remember. And my mom just like had an episode one day from being, I think after a period of time, that program expects you to look at you and stop talking about, you know, the alcoholic and she would not do it. She refused. And I learned this later um, as an adult, what happened, but she came home and basically with no plan, no money, talked me into leaving my dad because she had, I mean, it's just narcissism is very confusing. It's taken me mm-hmm. a long time to unwind what she did in that moment. But the end result was we left and left everything and went to my grandparents' house. And she expected my dad's kind of like somebody like burnt setting a fire, like an arsonist mm-hmm. setting the fire. Right. And then wanting someone like wanting someone to come rescue them from the own, their own fire that they set, right. you know, set. Yeah. And then if they don't, yeah, yeah, that was what she was doing. And, and my, and my dad just said, enough, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. And so he didn't. And she fell really hard into this victim role, which um, now I understand, you know, this is all a lot of the dysfunction of her family and that, you know, goes back generations, but like, Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my grandparents were both like, you just can't do this. You just can't do this to your family like this. So she just walled off. And, and I remember being really angry with her and telling her, I can't believe you've done this. You've talked to me. And she, she made a lot of promises. Like we're going to have a lot better life oh. without him. She made all these promises to me of what it was yeah. going to look like. And it was literally like everything was just burning to the ground. And my dad yeah. was not responding the way she had said he would. And you know, my life was, I felt like my life was just crashing. And she looked at me one day as I was yelling at her for what she did, <laughs> you know, and right. she said, you know what, I'm done. I'm done. I'm just going to live my life for myself. And she walked out of the room and she oh. kind of took this route that like, if he's not going to get sober and he's not going to get help, then I'm not going to do my part either. And wow. So she, she just abdicated her role as parent. Totally. Completely. 100%. Yeah. So I'm done. But she's really, really concerned with image. So she didn't want people, she wouldn't abandon us. Like this is where the narcissism played in our favor. So she wouldn't like abandon us because then she would look like a bad mother. So she did, you know, keep us with her and paid for, you know, our apartment and, you know, clothing and stuff. But 
the the shaming and this like the the abuse from her really came on strong and um so we moved to a bad bad worse area than we were in because she didn't have any money right she hadn't planned this out and we go and we had i remember we had no furniture and we took this really ugly furniture from my grandparents from like the 1950s it was just oh, horrifying wow. you know when you're 13 you're <laughs> now 13. it's worth a fortune i know oh yeah but it was like <laughs> green it was so ugly oh, yeah. and um I was so angry with her for doing what she had just done. And you weren't allowed to be angry like that. And I was right. like, you know, and about two weeks into living there, I ran into a, a guy that was a year older than me that had gone to school with me and his parents had just gotten divorced and his dad lived in the same complex and his dad was actually buying them alcohol and drugs. And I oh. got invited over there. And uh -huh. so I went over I didn't know this was going on and they offered me some alcohol and I drank a lot of it. I was supposed to babysit my brother that night. And mm. of course, because now I was the built-in babysitter. Right. It was like a Friday night. My mom came to get me from this apartment and I was so intoxicated. I'd never drank like that. I mean, I'd always been allowed to sip on drinks, but right. not like yeah. this. And the house smelled reeked like marijuana. And I walked down, I couldn't even walk down the stairs. I threw up all over her feet, her friend's feet, my feet. And, and she just looked at me and I lied. I think I said I ate a rotten bologna sandwich or something. I knew I was yeah. going to get in trouble for this. And she just, she was just so angry at me for not being able to watch my brother. And right. um, she really needed to walk up those stairs and tell that dad, if you right. ever give my daughter alcohol again, yeah, the cops will be here. That's what she needed to do. Right. And because she didn't do that, um, they invited me back and said, bring a friend. Mm. And they had every intention. It was three. Uh, it was my friend, his older brother and his older stepbrother. And I think the older stepbrother was the, the instigator on this to bring me back and my friend back and they could assault us. Ooh. We didn't know. And we went, I went back with a friend. I actually, that first night had so it's such severe alcohol poisoning. I really needed to go to the hospital that night. I was yeah. passed out in and out of consciousness on the bathroom floor. And I mm. just remember my mom screaming at me. I didn't raise you like this. And we only lived a literally a two minute drive to the hospital. Yeah. I didn't know that's a solution. Like when your kids come home at 13 and with alcohol poisoning, you really should right. take them to the a hospital. Like I didn't right. learn that till I was like in recovery and addiction recovery for like 10 years. Like it was like, oh, right. really? That's what was supposed to happen. <laughs> but we went back. I went back with a friend and I don't know if they, it's, there's a good possibility they might have actually drugged us too, but I don't know because. I don't know if that was even going on at the time, but the dad bought them alcohol and we left with his girlfriend and, and left all us kids. There was like eight year old, her eight year old and 15 year old. And then these older boys and us, they, they, they proceeded to give us alcohol um, to the point where I had a moment where I knew, Oh my God, something's wrong. I need to get out of here. Right. I went to stand up. Cause I've always had that. I've always had that. Oh yeah. I gotta get this. Something's wrong. And, uh -huh. um, but I couldn't walk. I yeah. couldn't get myself out. And so they, you know, assaulted me. I believe they probably did some to my friend, although she's not, doesn't really have a memory of it. We talked about uh -huh. it many years later, but I don't think to the extent they were me because she actually was pounding on the door to get me out of this bedroom that I couldn't even move. Mm. Um, and it, so she stopped it. And one of the other boys stopped what they were doing. I don't have a big memory of it. That's thank yeah. God. I think I was drugged or too intoxicated. I begged her not to tell 
my mom or anyone. I mean, I remember like never feeling shame like this in my life. Yeah. And I knew that nothing was going to happen. I mean, I think internally I knew I was going to, after what happened last time, I was just going to get blamed, but I looked like I had been assaulted. I was, Mm -hmm. you know, I came home, my mom knew something was wrong. I was worse than the last time I'd gone there in and out of consciousness. I mean, she really needed to call the paramedics or take me to the hospital and she did not. And wow. she stood out, she stood over me screaming at me again. Yeah. And my life changed like from that night on. Yeah. Like I was not the same kid. I was failing school. I was doing drugs every day. I was I wanted to kill myself. Right. And, and the only thing she said to me, my mom took me outside the, this treatment center at the time, the treatment was a big deal for teenagers. They yes. were starting to put them into treatment centers. And she stood outside St. Luke's Behavioral Health Center after, I think, catching me, you know, high, pretty high um, yeah. a few times. And she said, if you don't get your shit together, I'm going to put you in that hospital. And I don't know. I, I don't know any 13-year-old who's ever gotten their shit together on their <laughs> Right. <own. laughs> yeah. And that was her only threat. And that was it. You know, ended up running into a neighbor, meeting his brother, who was nine years older than me when I had just probably turned 14, like two weeks prior. Mm. He did the same thing, you know, gave me alcohol, yeah. assaulted me. But he he was different. He kind of paid attention to me and told me how pretty I was. And, you know, that I was like so mature and all this stuff. He was a pedophile. I went right. back, you know, I went back the yeah. next day. And was like, hi. And I was so desperate for somebody to like pay attention and love me and care for me that like he became my quote unquote boyfriend. So this was like your first romantic relationship then. Yeah. Yeah. And I was 14. I just turned 14 because I know it was like probably just the beginning of March, you know, when I met him and he was 23. His family, they were drug dealers. And mm. there was a big Mexican family. There's my Mexican family. I love the Mexican families. I wanted to be a yeah. Mexican family. Yeah. And they took me in, you know, uh-huh. but, you know, they were running drugs and in and out of prison, some of them. And but they were protecting me. Like they were like, if anybody messed with me, it's like they were going to be dealing with them. And I didn't have that at home. And my mom right. did get a, she did get a call from my girlfriend's mom telling her that you realize that he is you know, a drug dealer and he is nine years older and she wouldn't allow her daughter to be around me anymore. Mm. And my mom, the only thing she did was she called his mother. She looked him up in the phone book. I mean, this is when you could look people up in the phone book. Right. Just, yeah. you know, now you can do it online, but she called his mother and said, you realize my daughter is only 14. And I had lied about my age. I said I was 16, which is still. Yeah. The mom was like, oh my God, you know, she was worried for her son, which I don't blame her. Right. But, um, yeah. You know, she confronted me and I said, don't worry, my mom's not going to do anything. Yeah. And she and did she nothing. Did <laughs> yeah. She did nothing. And my dad did nothing. He, he actually did try to keep me from going over there one day when I was first going over to their house. He knew something was wrong. I shouldn't be doing that. And I told him, no, I'm going anyways. And he threw me pretty hard across like the kitchen into the wall mm. and got up in my face like he was going to beat me up. And I said, if you right. lay a hand on me. You will ne- I will never come to your house again. Yeah. He kind of knew at that point I, he had no control physically over mm-hmm. me anymore and I would right. leave and that I was probably messing with some people that were dangerous. And he then told me, I don't want this kind of relationship with you anymore. Like, basically, I'm not going to parent you either, um, but, w- but we're going to be friends 
And then I was kind of permitted to like live the adult life at his house. So I was allowed to smoke at his house and he didn't care if I got high. In fact, he even at some point like started buying drugs off, you know, my, my later boyfriends, you know, just, Mm -hmm. he was like, okay, you're in the, you're in my world now. And I proceeded to do drugs. Like I got, was given all kinds of drugs. This is before crack was out, but cocaine was on. Yeah. Yeah. They were free rocking it up themselves. They just called it free basing. You know, there was, there was a lot of, I'm lucky to have lived through that. Yes, (laughs) I mean, I, I am lucky to have lived through that. I, all the responsibility was put on me though. Never once did my, either my mom, you know, she blamed me. She would give me these weird rules that like, I couldn't drive in his car. It's like, okay, whatever. But then she'd never, I mean, it was just so crazy. I, I had to go to my dad's on the weekends. I could never stay at her house on the weekends because she had her life to live. Mm. I'd just go to that boyfriend's house and my dad didn't care. You know, it was right. just like, it was, that was how my life was. And I'm lucky I didn't get shot. I'm lucky I didn't, you know, get pregnant. I'm like, my aunt yeah. put me on the pill really young. Oh, took me to Planned Parenthood. I'm eternally grateful to Planned Parenthood. Yes, thank goodness. And, you know, I like eight, after 18 months of that, I didn't really want to be in it anymore. We had moved out of the neighborhood. We were living in a better neighborhood. I was going to a better school. He had actually beat up one of the boys that assaulted me. Oh. We just happened to run into them. And he, the guy yelled out, out the window at me that I was a slut. The, the good part for this boyfriend that I had was he was a professional boxer. Mm. I mean, this was like violent people. <laughs> Goodness but like, sakes. But they were, if you were on their side, you were not going to get messed with. And so he like literally beat this guy to a pulp in front of me. I mean, it was pretty satisfying, I have to say. He was more of a protector to me than my own parents were being. Right. But Isn't I think it's interesting that your abuser ended up being one of your cookie people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's not an unusual story. I've heard that many times over the years. Yeah. It took me a long time, though, to like, to pull this apart because, um, because of that, you know, um, to really be able to acknowledge that this was child abuse going on. Right. Right. But the child abuse really was from my parents because it was my mother's responsibility, my father's responsibility to keep me safe at 14 and 13 and 15. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the excuse my mother would always give would be like, well, I was so afraid you'd run away. Well, I'm like, yeah, well, that's when you like put me into treatment. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I mean, there were so many times that I needed them to step in and they just would never do it. So he was like, they were like my family after about 18 months of it and moving to a nicer area where the school, it was just different. It was like, I wanted to be my own, a kid, my own age. And I just didn't, I didn't want to be in that life anymore. I knew like I had a sense that this life kind of life was going to end. It could end very young. I kind of wanted to have a life. My mom, actually, my dad had married this other lady too. Like there was like some positive stuff starting right. to go on. So my mom sent me to Connecticut one summer with the intention to get me away from him, which was good, you know, but um, yeah. all the responsibility was on me to like end this. And so mm-hmm. my aunt sat me down and we talked me into writing a Dear John letter, which you know, is fine. I was out of town. I think if I would have done that in town, I mean, looking back, there's a, I'm, I'm lucky I didn't end up buried in the desert. I had a lot of information on the family that I, and older cousins that could have gone to prison. They kind of left me alone, but he did stalk me. This boyfriend stalked me at my new oh, high school after goodness. he ended up. So do you think you got addicted oh, to the yeah. drugs? Yeah. Yeah. I, 
I was definitely, I was at between 13 and 16, a daily user. And what was very confusing for me when I got into recovery, because a lot of times people in recovery talk about the progression, it gets worse and worse and worse, and then Mm -hmm. they can't stop doing it. So I was actively, I think I was on a more of a suicide mission. I mean, I was just really trying to keep any kind of pain away. And then at 16, I had had one other relationship with another older person, very violent at 15, older guy, he was 25. Again, I was looking for like a home, um, someone to care for me. And he was physically violent. Like he would like, if I said no to him, like, grab me by the hair and throw me down. And Mm -hmm. we would get, I mean, he was much bigger than me, but I was still willing to fist fight him. I mean, I was such such a scrapper. But there was like this part of me that was just like, this is not the way to live, you know, like, so I had to end it with him and and the cops had to get involved. But again, like my mom knew, like, there's no way, like, I have a 15 year old now. Yes. And this really comes up when you have kids. And I tried to, I tried to imagine like what I would do if my son pulled Mm -hmm. up with a 25 year old woman driving him around as his girlfriend. Like it just there would be no further step on that. It just wouldn't happen. Right. That woman. I, I can't be, even imagine you in yeah, that kind of a situation. You know, and here I am like, like getting in a domestic violence situation. And I broke up with the guy um, because I really was at this school where like kids were really treated well. The teachers really did pretty, most of them tra- treated the kids well. And, and I really just wanted to be a kid my own age. And right. so here I am 16. I want to be a kid my own age. And the guy like that I broke up with, like stalked me. I had, so my first two relationships were very, very bad. Ooh. And he stalked me and he saw me with another, like a guy I had met that was my age in high school. Mm-hmm. And he came after me at a friend's house. We were having a party and he like literally tried to attack me through, like punched his arm through the door, came oh, through the house gosh. and half the football team was there. Thank God. And so yeah. he didn't know that. And he, they chased him out, but we had, he had guns and he would mm-hmm. come to my house and I'd have to call the police. And finally he got, he found somebody else. So yeah, my first experiences and my mom was really like, and this boy, you know, my mom was really like, every time she'd find out what had happened to me, she would use it against me. It's very narcissistic, very common in narcissism. Yeah. Oh yeah. She would tell me like, you're in this mess because of your situation from when you were 13 and you've not dealt with that assault. It's like, okay. Oh, (laughs) and she'd put me in therapy to deal with it. You know, I learned Later, when I really did go to real recovery for that um, here in San Diego for the Center for Community Solutions that actually does Mm -hmm. know how to help people. I remember the counselor telling me there's no way you could have done that at that age because you didn't have the the brain development. Right. Until you were probably 23 or 24 to process what happened to you. It was so violent. And so I would be re-violated constantly by my mother because I was in really having PTSD off and on. Yeah. Yeah. So you were able to get yourself off the drugs, literally get yourself off of them. It's 16. Yeah. So at 16, I told her I really need help. I can't stop doing drugs. That's all the time we have for the first part of Christy's story. Join us in the next episode when she gives us her insights on recovery and reparenting. Thanks for joining me for this episode. It was produced by me, Brita Firm 
and edited by Vaughn David. Our music is by Emmanuel Wilde. If you like what you heard, please leave a positive review and tell a friend. Also, tap subscribe and notifications so you won't miss a single episode. Remember, as you walk your reparenting path, you can take your time. You deserve all the love you want, and my love goes with you.